Okay, well today, by the way, is the final message in the study of 2 Peter. Let's give it up for 2 Peter, huh? It's awesome. So we've been in it for many months. We really have. We started shortly after the new year. We broke for some other uh, things that we did, but we have been walking through this short book of only three chapters, and we've been talking about the theme, and the theme is spiritual growth and maturity. And we've seen that in all of the chapters that we've come through, and and maybe after this, if you've been with us most all of the time, if not all the time, you, you may be thinking, well, man, we covered a lot of stuff. How in the world am I going to remember all that stuff? Well, the obvious easy answer is we'll just go back and review Second Peter. Whether you have the notes from our, our teaching or not, you have the book, you have the Word of God, and just remember that God is challenging us in all of those areas. But today, what I want to do in wrapping up this book series is to kind of give it to you in a one-word summary. So the title I've given is Spiritual Growth and Maturity in One Word. In One Word. And so in your notes, I started with this statement. Spiritual growth and maturity can be achieved by remembering and applying one word, and here's the word, humility. Humility. And and as we'll see as we read in just a second these last several verses of the book of 2 Peter, uh, it doesn't directly mention humility, but I think by the time we're done, you're going to see how it applies to every single thing that we do. I want to remind you of Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 12, where it says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Uh, a person is honored, a person is exalted, a person is lifted up when he's humble. That's how God works. So the forerunner to destruction is pride. That's the word of God. The forerunner to God giving honor, right, or growth in order to achieve that is humility. That's what it is. And you know what? This really is the paradox of the Christian life because the paradox of the Christian life is the way up is down. You want to lead? Be a servant. Uh, It's just the opposite of the wisdom of this world, isn't it? I mean, if you're in this business world and you want to work your way up the corporate ladder, typically you're going to find yourself stepping on other people in order to do it. Christianity is just the opposite. You want to be great in the kingdom? Be the servant of all. In other words, get below the burdens of others and lift them up, and it says God will lift you up. So with that in mind, uh, I want us to look at the closing remarks of the Apostle Peter in this last epistle. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 15, and we've only got four verses, so follow along, please. It says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. So we're going to start with our first point today, and that is the key to true salvation. We're going to see this in verse number 15. It starts out by saying, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Take an account. Come to the conclusion after you do the math. 
that the long-suffering of God is in order to be able to provide you the opportunity to respond to the free offer of salvation. The long-suffering, in other words, God suffers a long time enduring our sin, enduring our rebellion, and He does it before He brings the ultimate prophesied judgment that we read about previously. He waits and He waits and He waits in order to offer to us more time to repent. I've said this before. I can't help but think about it. Anytime I think of the long-suffering of God, aren't you thankful that He did not bring His ultimate judgment before you got the chance to hear? It's the long-suffering of God that is the thing that provides us the ability to hear the Word and to be able to repent before it's too late. This is His goodness toward us. Amen? Paul said to the Romans this in Romans 2 and verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Think about it for a second. When you respond to the offer of eternal life, the free gift, that's the goodness of God offered to you. I know that some people say that I got saved because I was afraid, I didn't want to go to hell. I get that, but the corollary with that fearful message is the good news that there's a way out. It's the goodness of God that gives you this free gift by grace. It's the goodness of God that He hasn't called time already and brought judgment. It is the goodness of God that leads you to ultimately repent and to receive Him. Man, that is how he works. Account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It goes on and says, Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So Paul has some wisdom, like Peter, in this area of the long-suffering of God and salvation. So 1 Timothy 1 verse 16 bears that out. Where he says, Paul says this to Timothy, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy. Notice that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Was Paul the first person ever saved? No, of course not. He's, de- he's demonstrating that God showed tremendous long suffering with Saul of Tarsus and leading him through his goodness to ultimately repent and one day become the Apostle Paul. You remember the story of Saul, don't you? You remember how he was a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church that stood by witnessing and approving the murder of many Christian people, nonetheless of which was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Saul of Tarsus was feared. He was a persecutor. He was a hater of the church, and yet God was so good and so long-suffering that he extended the grace even to Saul. And he said that he showed it in me how and why for a pattern, for a pattern. You know why? Because although I've never murdered anybody, I've never persecuted the church directly, oh, I have a fair length list, lengthy list of sins. I, I've been down some roads I'm ashamed of, haven't you? I mean, I've done and said and thought and done again things that I wish I'd have never done. If I could get some take-backs, I'd take them back, wouldn't you? Listen, the Lord showed long-suffering to me, too. 
just like he did with Paul. Paul's life then becomes a pattern for us all concerning long-suffering and salvation. What I want us to see when we look at what it says here, though, in verse 15, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as Paul, right, according to the wisdom given unto him, writing of these things. Well, I want us to look a little bit at the New Testament doctrine of salvation. New Testament salvation was revealed to Paul as a doctrine. Salvation existed from the time of the resurrection, and the Lord began to work in people's lives from the beginning of the church with the indwelling spirit in Acts 2. I get all of that. But the idea of the doctrine of salvation as revealed in the New Testament is a doctrine that previously was a mystery until God revealed it new through the Apostle Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him. That's what it says. So let's take a look at it because this is the way it works. Romans chapter 10. If you have never noticed this in Romans chapter 10, this will change your perspective. This is so clear and this is so easy. You have to get this. Romans 10 verse number 1. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. Now the context is Paul's an Israelite, and he loves his kinsmen according to the flesh, but generally those are people who are rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And similarly, we can make the application to people that we know today who have a zeal for God, but not according to proper knowledge. There's a lot of religious zealots in the world, aren't there? But they don't all understand the truth, do they? So that's kind of the context we're dealing with. Verse number three, notice. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. What did they do? Going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now notice verse number four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Amen? There's no more need to worry about the effectiveness of the Old Testament law in your life if you just believe on what Jesus Christ did for you. Now notice the contrast and comparison. Verse number five, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. There is a righteousness that comes through the law. How's it described, Moses? The man that doeth those things shall live by them. So the Old Testament law had a righteousness system that included the people doing certain things. You had to have kept the law. And if you have kept the law, well, that is the righteousness of the law. Verse number six, here's the contrast. But the righteousness which is of faith today speaketh on this wise. How does it speak? Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. In other words, the righteousness which is of faith says not go do stuff. Go up and bring somebody down. Go down and bring somebody up. The righteousness that is of faith is not the same as the righteousness which is of the law. Are we all together on this? This is what the Bible says, right? It's very simple, and it's very clear. Now, what saith it, verse number 8? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So here is the righteousness which comes of faith. Verses 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, 
thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10 are probably the two greatest verses in all the New Testament that have led more people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ than any two verses in the Bible. I mean, these, if you're doing the Romans Road presentation, you're using these verses. If you're sharing the gospel with anybody, odds are you're using these verses because they describe for us the righteousness which is by faith. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So heart belief and mouth confession is simply your natural response to God's free gift, the offer of salvation. It's not that you have to go and do a bunch of things. This is repeated over and over again. I just want to draw your attention to Galatians 3 and verse number 12, where it clearly says, again, this is the New Testament, Paul writing to a church, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. The system of the law is a system of works. The system of the law is a system where you have to come and you have to do some things. So the next thing in your notes, the Old Testament law required works. The Old Testament law required works. You just have to understand that. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, I just picked a few places. There could be many. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, it's conditional, you have to do these things, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.25, And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. You see that? Ezekiel 18.21, But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statues and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So listen, Old Testament salvation under the law of Moses is not, has never been, nor will it ever be, the same as New Testament salvation, which is under grace. Never has it been that way. This is clear, is it not? This is as simple as just reading. Any of you who have learned to read, and everybody in this room has gotten that far, we can see for ourselves that that is what the Bible teaches. Listen, you'd have to go to a Bible college to not believe that. You'd have to have, I'm not even kidding, you'd have to have a seminary education for somebody to get in your face and tell you why things that are not the same are. And why people in the Old Testament had to have been looking forward to the future death of the Messiah. I dare you to cut out the New Testament out of your Bible, take only the Old Testament, and show me anybody in the Old Testament who is looking forward to a future death, burial, and resurrection on a cross of a Messiah. Show me one. Without the New Testament revelation to interpret some pictures in the Old Testament, you're never finding it. Why? Because it wasn't the same. That's why we believe that the Bible is to be understood as we use this word dispensationally. That's why, as it says in 2 Timothy 2, that we need to rightly divide the word of truth. Because the Old Testament law required works as that system. But the New Testament, back to your notes, New Testament salvation is only by grace and faith. And we understand this. During the transition into the time of the New Testament, the book of Acts gives us the history of what was going on during the transition from the Old Testament system into the New Testament system. Things were not just cut sharp with a knife. One day it's this system, oh, today now it's a new system. It was was kind of a waxing and a waning of systems and some overlap, and depending on that where you were on the planet and what was going on, people were slowly getting revelation 
unfolded to them one step at a time until they kind of figured it out. And so there was still some confusion in the time of the book of Acts as to exactly what system was going on. It seemed a little bit weird. And so what had to happen was there had to be an official conversation and a decision made by the heads of the church, and that decision happened in Acts chapter 15. And so let me just read for you a few verses from Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. So they're still wanting to keep the Old Testament legal system. You have to do some things or else you can't be saved. When therefore Paul, here's his introduction to this situation, therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They were arguing, y'all. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. In other words, the question is, is salvation today according to the Old Testament law or is there a new system by faith alone? Jump down to verse number four. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. We're now into the New Testament era. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, can you imagine being in that room that day? I mean, you might come away thinking, where's the sweet spirit of Christ in here? (laughs) These guys are going at it right? Can I just stop enough to remind you that on occasion, a good, healthy argument that leads somebody to a better understanding of truth can be worthwhile. Can be worthwhile. I mean, you got to do it in love, but come on. And when there had been much disputing, the Lord preserves for us, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And you could go back to, you know, Acts chapters 10 and 11 and kind of get that story. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts. How? By faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God, sect of the Pharisees, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, notice, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Why did Jesus have to come? Because no man could possibly keep the law. And since no man could keep the law, the law is our schoolmaster, which drives us to Jesus Christ. He is saying effectively these Pharisees, law-abiding, pork-abstaining Jews, He is saying, why are you trying to burden these people with a yoke that you couldn't even bear? How foolish. And then he goes on in verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. There's no two systems. You go your way and I'll go mine and we'll just all get there at the end. There's one system, and the system has changed post-resurrection of Jesus Christ. The official decision comes in verse 19. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. 
Why would we add to the free gift of salvation some legalistic standard of doing stuff? No. So the great news, y'all, which we have enjoyed for a couple of millennia, is that salvation is now not by works, as is clearly stated in places like Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 2.8.9, many of you know by heart, for by grace are you saved through faith. Yeah? It's not of yourselves, right? It's the gift of God. Not of works. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Lest any man should boast. I want you to keep that in mind for a second because you say, okay, cool, right, got it. The doctrine of salvation. If you went to a seminary, they would call it soteriology. It's a big $5 word. I mean, if you spend that much money for an education, you ought to at least learn some words. Soteriology just means salvation. It's the doctrine of salvation. You say, cool, that's awesome. What's that got to do with humility? Well, it's simple. Without works involved in your salvation, there's no room for you to boast. There will be exactly zero people in heaven saying, well, of course I'm here. You realize what I did to get here? (laughs) Zero. The only way in, there's only one way. And the only way in, humbly submitting yourself to the truth of the fact that you have nothing to offer. Nothing. And that it's a free gift. That's what I put in your notes. True salvation requires humbly accepting that you have nothing to offer and you fall on God's mercy to receive His charitable gift of salvation. If it weren't for your response in humility... You're not saved. With all due respect, you are not saved. If you think that you have been a good enough person, that you have gone to church enough, you've given enough money, you've helped enough people, your good works outweigh your bad works. If that's what you're counting on, sir, ma'am, you're still proud. And pride goes before destruction, right? And before honor is humility. So you get saved when you're finally humble enough to realize that you can't do it. Somebody else had to do it for you. So that's the key to true salvation. The second point is the key to true knowledge. Verses 16 and 17. It goes on and it says, As also in all his, speaking of Paul's, epistles, notice, speaking in them of these things, so we're going to talk about soteriology, in which are some things hard to be understood. You know, this week, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, how much fun could we have trying to dig out all the things that Paul talks about that are hard to understand? I mean, well, let me say, fun, more fun for some of us than others, maybe. I don't know. I like that kind of thing. Okay, so... We could literally spend our, it's a lifetime study, is it not? Digging into the depths of the wealth of the riches afforded to us in just the New Testament epistles written to the churches by the hand of the Apostle Paul. Well, what I want us to look at are some things that the Bible calls mysteries, calls them mysteries. And so there's New Testament mysteries revealed to 
Paul. And the first category of mysteries, and this is, this is an overview, by the way. We, we have taught this material in detail at 9 a.m. Bible studies and things like that. But just for your reference, and you can go back home and look them up and look into them some more. But we're going to put them in two categories. The first category is concerning salvation. Because we're talking about the context of salvation. We're talking about how we know that we know that we're saved and how we know it's not by works. And we know that the long-suffering of God and His goodness brings us the ability to be able to be saved, right? So he speaks in them of these things which are some things hard to be understood, the New Testament mysteries concerning salvation, because he does say speaking in them of these things, the context is salvation. There's several mysteries. We're not going to read them all. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, I think they're coming up on the screen. This one we call the, the mystery of godliness. See how God uses the word mystery? It's right in there. And it says, God was manifest in the flesh. So we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and how he lived his sinless life, right? He was preached unto the Gentiles and eventually received up into glory. You know what that is in, in a word? That's basically a summary of the gospel, isn't it? That's what it is. And this mystery is something that previously was unknown, but until it happened, then, oh, 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 that's what God is doing. So you begin to see that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and the first six verses where Paul talks about there is this thing called the dispensation of the grace of God and he says it was given to me for you. So again, these are things that are given to Paul. This is the revelation of the complete understanding of this thing of soteriology as the New Testament system of salvation has shifted to make it way easier, by the way, than from the Old Testament system of salvation and if you read on down to verses 5 and 6 what it talks about is the jews and the gentiles this is the mystery now unlike the old testament are together in one body in christ there's no more division that the jews are the people of god and the gentiles are the pagans there's no more haves and have-nots there's no more division we all become one in one united body this was a mystery throughout all the Old Testament. It is now revealed, oh, to the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 to 27, talks about this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we had the incarnate Christ. Now we have the indwelling Christ. And the indwelling Christ is the thing that seals our salvation and makes sure that we understand that we have this thing called the hope of glory. That doesn't mean hope so. It means it's absolutely sure. It's just still yet future. So the hope of glory is our eternal security. It's the fact that once you come to know the Lord in salvation, there's no way possible that you could ever lose that. Why? Because Christ is in you. And if you were going to go to hell, he'd have to go with you. Uh, he's not doing that. Amen. This was a mystery. Not anymore. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Ephesians 5 is that passage we like to read at weddings. The husband and wife relationship and how they interact with one another. And it goes through all the roles of a husband and a wife. Great Bible study in Ephesians 5. And it ends with verse 32, right? Where it talks about this is a great mystery, this husband and wife thing. Oh, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So the church is not only the body, the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. 
That was unknown in the Old Testament. These are some things which in Peter's day in the first century, hard to be understood. Hard for them to understand. Brand new stuff. By the way, not hard for us because we're so far beyond it. The revelation of the Scripture is complete. We can just read it and say, oh, well, okay. But they couldn't do that back then because it was still being revealed. First category, concerning salvation. Second category, concerning prophecy. I just lumped them in a category, called it prophecy, because they really are future things. Some things that are hard to be understood. And Romans 11.25 talks about the return of the nation of Israel. There's a lot of people who think God's done with Israel and they're just another terrorist nation like anybody else and all that sort of thing. And they forget that when God made the promise to Abraham, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, that that thing is an eternal covenant and it's never going away. And you better be careful what you do with the nation of Israel. And so he says they're coming back. They're coming back. Don't get too haughty, church, thinking you got it all figured out. Israel's coming. Yeah, they blew it. Yeah, they're on hold for a while. They're coming back. The return of the nation of Israel. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. We love 1 Corinthians 15, 51. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, right, at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise. This is the rapture of the church, right? So the ra- this is our glorious hope. This is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the trumpet will sound, and we'll all be caught up in the, in the, in the air together to meet Him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4. Man, the rapture of the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. The entire church was a mystery, for, for that matter. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 7, the revealing of the Antichrist. It's called the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity. And that system through which the devil, revealing himself through a man, the Antichrist in the tribulation, plays out the ultimate plan that Satan had to try and usurp and overthrow God's plan for the people for eternity. And there is one last mystery in the Bible. It wasn't revealed to Paul. I just threw it in there in Revelation 17 and verse 5 where it talks about mystery Babylon the Great. And it's the false religious system that the Antichrist will use to deceive the peoples of this world. So you have the return of Israel, the rapture of the church, the revealing of the Antichrist, and then the religion of the Antichrist. And with the exception of Revelation chapter 17, which was given to the Apostle John, What you have is Paul being the chosen apostle to whom new truth was revealed a couple thousand years ago. And so for people that were alive in the first century that would have been the audience recipients of Peter's letter, that would have been hard to to be understood. Hard to be understood. But it shouldn't be hard for you. So going back to your notes, you can't know the truth if you don't study. 2 Timothy 2.15 you are commanded to study the Scriptures. And in the course of studying the Scriptures, the proper way to do it is to place the divisions in the right places. If you don't rightly divide, you wrongly divide. And if you wrongly divide, then you might be led to think that salvation in the Old Testament law was the same as salvation in the New Testament time of the church and grace. You would be in error. That would be a mistake. That would be a problem. And so he talks about that, Peter does. Going back to 2 Peter, it says, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. So there's going to be people who are going to have a hard time. They're going to wrestle with this idea of the stuff Paul is revealing. The people that wrestle with these things and can't receive them, right, as we'll see in a minute, aren't humble, are they? 
they're going to wrestle with them, they are proving themselves to be unlearned and unstable. And it says, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Before we move on, I just want to point out that even in the very first century, Paul's writings were already being considered as scriptures. Do you see that? Already being considered as scriptures. There are some religions out there that will say, well, you know, it's only whatever Jesus says. I mean, if the letters aren't in red, I don't even care, right? The red letter editions of the Bible. Listen, Paul's word was considered to be scripture according to Peter, right? And so that's something to keep in mind. By the way, that's how you determine what is scripture. We determine what is scripture, or it was determined what is scripture and what's not, based on the collective testimony of the born-again body of the church that read the letters and understood what God was doing. It's not by some official church council that took place in some air-conditioned tower somewhere. This is how God's word is confirmed. It has always been confirmed that way. So they that are unlearned and unstable, it says rest, W-R-E-S-T. Like the word wrestle, it means to twist. Take out of context. That's the idea of resting the scriptures. So very quickly, I just gave you a rundown. I know I've got a lot of blanks in your notes, but just keep your mind on what we're talking about. The first way that you can rest the scripture is to change it. Just change what it says. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 17 talks about many people, it says, who will corrupt the word of God. They're going to corrupt it. They're going to just change what it says. Uh, the second point, misrepresent it. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2, it talks about people who will handle the word of God deceitfully. Handle it with deceit. They will misrepresent what God is trying to communicate through his clear word. And lastly, they're going to flat out falsify it. Just Say stuff that isn't so. And so if you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 2, it's very interesting because Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, that you be not shaken or troubled. It says, notice, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. That the day of Christ... So the idea is the Thessalonian church was receiving letters that were, were noted as though they were from Paul. And Paul says, we didn't write those. They're lying. That's, those are forgeries. Don't be deceived by letters as from us. We didn't write those letters. People were corrupting the word of God. They were deceitfully handling the word of God. And they were flat out falsifying the word of God. Even in the first century. Even in the first century. And the Holy Spirit through Peter says, such people, they rest the scriptures. He calls them unlearned and unstable. There's some examples of false doctrine. Let me just throw these out to you. There's a lot, obviously, but there's people who think that, like I said, the church replaces Israel. God's done with Israel. The promises to Israel now apply to us. Um, sorry, no. Uh, because you didn't understand the mystery of Romans 11.25. Uh, the church doesn't replace Israel. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called British Israelism. That's kind of where it started. And it rolled into a group called the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, they're big promoters of this thing. They've now changed their name because everybody's on to them. So they call themselves Grace Communion 
International. Big proponents. It's all about the church. Israel's done. That's a false doctrine. That's unstable. That's unlearned. Uh, how about this? The, the bride of Christ is not the same as the body of Christ. Uh, there's groups that teach that. Uh, you got people who are dispensationalists, but they are hyper-dispensationalists, and they would say that some people are in the body of Christ, but not everybody's in the bride of Christ. And there are some, there are some Baptist groups that are so extreme in this that they literally, there are churches, this might surprise you, there are some Baptist churches that believe, that <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this, that only the Baptist church is the bride of Christ. Every other Christian is just, well, they're in the body. But they're not the bride. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? There's, there's literally denominations of people that believe that stuff. Uh, how about just very simply losing your salvation? Right? There's tons of non-denominational churches. There's a lot of charismatic Pentecostal churches that think that salvation is received by grace through faith. Praise God for that. But they think that if you don't work hard enough and do right, you can lose it. Well, that's a misunderstanding of Colossians chapter 1 and the fact that Christ is in you and he's the hope of glory. And there's no getting around that thing. You see? You see how that thing works out? How about that you've got to keep certain sacraments and, and baptize your infants in order for them to wash away original sin? Isn't that a system of works? Yeah, these are just not understanding the truth of the Scriptures. These are unstable and unlearned restings of the Scriptures. How about God's church is either only a local church or a universal church, but not both? Uh, there's some people who think that when God talks about the church, the popular opinion among parachurch organizations, right, organizations that serve the Lord but they're not connected to a church, well, when God talks about the church, he's just talking about the collective body of people who have been born again from the time of the resurrection until the time of the rapture. We make up the church. Okay, there is truth to that statement. There are scriptures that defend that. But as a result, what they do is they swing the pendulum so far, they say local church doesn't even really matter. We're all in the church. Um, yeah, you kind of blew it because they're, the vast majority of references in the word church in the scriptures are to local assemblies that actually met in the same geographic area. Well, then there's whole groups of people that say, well, the church is only a local church. That whole universal church thing, that's just a dream of somebody's imagination. No, you got it wrong too. Because at the end of the day, the truth is always going to be both. You have a local, literal, physical representation. Our body of a church here in Ohio is a picture and a type of the ultimate universal spiritual assembly of all Christians before Christ. But it is just as valid for us to follow, therefore, the instructions for a local body as it is for us to understand what it is we picture and typify on the other side. And so you have a lot of people messed up with those kinds. Listen, there are endless examples of people who rest the scriptures out of their context. So go back to 2 Peter 3 and verse 17. Ye therefore, now he's writing to the guys that, you know, this is his guys, this is his audience. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Well, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, Satan is referred to as that wicked. So the error of the wicked shows that the resting of the Scripture is a, is a method of Satan, 
to deceive people. Oh, don't you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, the first time the serpent ever shows up on the scene? What's the first words out of his mouth? Yea, hath God said. And what does he do? He changes what God says. He misrepresents what God says. He lies and deceives Eve into believing something that wasn't true. That's his style. That's what he does. So if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, certainly you have to grow in knowledge, right? We see that in verse 18. You have to learn the truth. John 17, thy word is truth. You have to study the Bible so that you can know what God expects, right? So Paul, again, refers to this in Ephesians 4, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. Uh, it's okay if you get saved, you start out as a child, but don't stay there forever, grow up. That we be no more children tossed to and fro, characteristics of children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Oh, and it's not even sincere because it's by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Seems like there's something behind it whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ. So, man, we've got to study the word. We've got to get it right. But wait, wait, because even false teachers study, y'all. I mean, people who teach error are not unintelligent, and they are not lazy. They're just wrong. They're just wrong. So we have to be careful. So the real key, this is your notes, the real key to true knowledge is not just study. It's humility. It's always humility. Because if you don't have the attitude of submission to this book as your final absolute authority in all matters of faith and practice in your life, you're never truly going to learn the things God has for you to learn as His Holy Spirit teaches His Word to your heart. It's only going to happen when you completely and totally surrender your will of being the boss, of being in charge, of making the decisions. You surrender it to the Lord and you say, Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but if you will show me, I will do it. When you have that humble approach, well, God's going to teach you a lot. And by the way, friends, this simple statement, it is everything in your spiritual growth. That's why I said spiritual growth and maturity in one word, humility. It's everything in your being able to be saved. It's everything in your really learning. How many people do we know that know stuff about the Bible, but they are so proud and they're so self-serving and they are so caustic and so judgmental. Man, do they really know stuff? I'm not talking about can they ace an exam. I'm talking about have they grown in knowledge? It's about growth because, man, you can't approach the Scriptures with pride. You can't do it. You can't think you're smart enough to decide, well, that verse doesn't really belong in the best manuscripts. You're, you're not that smart. Just be humble. Just allow the Lord to speak to you 
Let him take his word and use it. That's how you gain stability. That's how you really learn. Okay, let's go to the third point, the key to true growth. This will be our last one. It won't take long. Verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Principles for spiritual growth, grow in knowledge. We've kind of looked at that already, okay? So the idea of gaining stability, we stand on the truth of God's word, rightly divided. So 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, stand fast in the faith. You have to understand what the faith is. The faith is the body of truth in which we have come to understand through the word of God. So we have to stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. And that's why we emphasize Bible study so much around here. That's why we talk about everybody desiring for everybody to surrender and to participate in a system of Bible study and discipleship. We have personal discipleship. We have this ministry tools and training class after personal discipleship. We have 9 a.m. Bible studies. We have many, many opportunities for you to grow in knowledge. And if you are not taking advantage of these opportunities afforded to you, the odds are you're not really growing in your knowledge the way that you need to continue to grow. If you're not participating, if you don't understand what God's Word says, requires, expects of you, well, you really don't have a fighting chance to be able to live it. You don't even know what He expects. You can think you know generally, well, you know, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls that do, and that'll get you started. <laughs> okay, that's obvious, but there's a little more to it in this book. So you got to study. you got to get in, man. you got to let people teach you. you got to get a handle on this stuff. So this is the obvious first step. you gotta, you got to know what the rules are. But here's where we're really landing. Grow in grace. you got to grow in grace, man. Because we don't just stand and get stability from the Word. We stand in God's grace. Ephesians 5, 2, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hebrews 13, 9, Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, things that are wrested out of context. Notice, for it is a good thing that the heart be established. That word establish means to set a firm foundation. To establish something makes it stable. The heart needs to be established with grace, not with meats. What are meats in the context? The meats are the strong, deep teachings of the Word of God as contrasted to milk, which would be the simple stuff that even children, small children can take in. Listen, you need to understand the truth of the Word of God. But if your heart is not established in grace, knowledge is going to puff you up. Knowledge is going to want you to take the two-edged sword of the Word of God and slash some people's heads off with it. That's what knowledge alone will do. But that's why you need to grow in grace. Oh, and in knowledge, of course. Because if you don't know the right thing, you don't have a chance. But man, knowing it alone, that's dangerous. That's never enough. So you need to establish 
your mind with knowledge and you need to establish your heart with grace. So let's look at that. Point number one, receive grace from God. Well, this is easy. Via humility, of course. Spoiler alert, the next one's humility too. First point, receive grace from God via humility. James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. How many would say at times in your life, maybe today, maybe other times, man, could I use an extra dose of grace from the Lord today? Do you know that the word of God promises that God will continue to give? Look, the grace of God in salvation is fantastic, but it doesn't just stop there. He offers more and more and more for all the challenges you face. Do you know how you can sign up to guarantee you get more grace? Be humble. Because he resists the proud. You don't want to be on that team. He gives grace to the humble. You've got to be humble. So the second one I already gave you the blank. Show grace to others via humility. So humility allows you to receive more grace. Humility allows you to dish out more grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Listen, big boy, don't think you're so tough. Don't think you're so cool that you don't ever fall. Don't think that you got it made just because that person struggles with something you don't struggle with. You struggle with something else. You just don't talk about that one. You just talk about the other guys. Let him that thinks he stands take heed. You better be humble. Why? Because verse 13, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Everybody's going through it, man. But God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able? Man, he's good. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it? Man, that's a humble attitude. We're all going through it. I love you. I want to help you. I don't know if I have anything for you, but man, I'm going to extend you grace. Man, if we would just do this more, y'all, right? I mean, people would be flocking to come to churches where true grace was extended. I think we take this seriously. We need to grow in knowledge, but man, we need to grow in grace. A proud man learns truth and uses it piously to attack others that haven't learned it yet. But a mature man behaves like a father taking what he knows to help children learn and grow through their circumstances. So here's the general rule of ministry. You ready? I mean, this is worth the price of admission right here. Give grace to the humble. Give the law to the proud. This is how God deals with you This is how you should deal with others. Think about it in the context of evangelism. When a person proudly defends their own righteousness, what is the biblical method to help them come to the point where they know they need to be saved? You use the law of Moses, and you lay out God's righteous standard, which, oh yeah, nobody can keep. 
to bring them to Christ. They need the law. They need to be confronted with ultimate righteousness and judgment to break their will. Once their will is broken, once they're humble, nothing but grace, man. Nothing but grace. You ever go out and try to minister to people who are struggling with different kinds of problems in their lives, whatever it might be? If that person proudly defends their right to keep sinning, grace is not the answer for that person. The law is the answer until they're broken. But if a person comes humbly saying, man, I've got trouble. I don't know what to do. I just, I just need help. Then the answer is always grace. It's always grace. You can apply that to evangelism. You can apply that to discipleship. As you're teaching and training your disciples and you find areas of pride in their life, well then remind them of God's law. And when you find areas of true humility, man, extend to them grace. Help them to grow. All right, well the last statement in this little letter, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You know what this is? This is the attitude of maturity. The attitude of maturity is, my life isn't about me. It's about Him. It's not about me getting glory. It's not about me getting what I deserve or I think people ought to give me. It's about God getting the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the attitude of real spiritual growth. and mature. Do you see humility is the least common denominator that runs through all of these different subjects concerning your growth and maturity? Do you realize that the Apostle Peter's last words, verse number 18, were to remind us about the importance of the ever-continuing process of growing in our walk with the Lord? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't we want that? Well, I think you do want it. So let's close this study by just reminding ourselves of what he said back in chapter number one. Because in chapter number one, at the end of that short process, verses five, six, and seven, seven things you add to your faith to take these steps of growth in your life with the Lord, he then jumps in in verse number eight and tells us the benefits, if you will do it. We've spent months studying spiritual growth and maturity. Let me just remind us all of the benefits, why we want to always and forever pursue it in our lives. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. 
This is the last letter Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit before his physical life is approaching an end. And the last thing he wants to leave with the disciples in his life is continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. In other words, always pursue that next step, whatever that next step is. So each of you need to consider today, what is God showing you to be your next step? Is it salvation? Is your next step humbling yourself before the Lord and receiving his free gift of eternal life? Is your next step humbling yourself before the Lord and acknowledging the fact that you have been negligent in your systematic study of his word, that you haven't taken the time and made the effort to go through discipleship and to learn how to understand the word of God? Is your next step just better understanding how you need to show grace to others? Whatever your next step is, man, please don't walk out of here without doing what God has led you to do. Let's pray together. And Heavenly-